I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And this is our third episode. Today we have a special guest. Ben McKenna is now a photographer at the Portland Press-Herald, but the reason he's with us is because he was a reporter at the Morning Sentinel a few years ago. Ben, just say hi. Glad to be here. So you are right now, but... (laughs) (laughs) The reason Ben's here today is because of our topic... We're coming up on the fifth anniversary of the disappearance of Ayla Reynolds, a 20-month-old in Waterville, Maine, who disappeared from her father and grandmother's home on December 17, 2011. has yet to be found, and her disappearance spurred what's called the biggest criminal investigation in Maine history. And Ben is a reporter at the Morning Sentinel in Waterville, for the first year of that was the main reporter on the case, so he knows a lot about it. Ayla Reynolds was 20 months old when she disappeared, and she had been living with her father, Justin DiPietro, in Waterville. Ayla's mother, Trista Reynolds, lived in Portland, which is about 70 miles south of Waterville. And she and Justin had have, had a very brief relationship, and she had had custody of Ayla. She had to go into rehab in October of 2011, and Justin and his mother took Ayla in. That's when Justin moved from Portland, I believe, to his mother's house in Waterville. On December 15th, Trista Reynolds filed in Portland for full custody of Ayla. That day, she called Justin up to talk to Ayla, and he told her she couldn't because Ayla was watching Home Alone and Mm -hmm. didn't want to come to the phone. She's 20 months old, so... Right? Trista never talked to her again. Ayla was reportedly seen for the last time by her aunt, Aunt Alicia DiPietro, who also had a baby and lived in the same Justin's house. Justin's sister. Justin's sister. And put Ayla to bed at 10 p.m. Ayla was wearing one-piece pajamas with the words Daddy's Princess on them. Her arm was in a sling. She had broken her arm a few weeks before when Justin fell on her when he was carrying her up the stairs and slipped on the steps. It was described as a soft cast. At 8.49 a.m. that Saturday morning, he called 911 to report her missing, saying he found her bed empty. Waterville police, firefighters, game wardens, they searched the neighborhood. They searched dumpsters. I was, at the time, working for the Kennebec Journal of Morning Sentinel as the night editor, and I was working that day, and the reporter, Doug Harlow, who was the weekend reporter, called me up and said, there's a two-year-old missing in Waterville, and they're looking for her. And I'm like, oh, great, do a story. And I said, they'll, they'll probably find her. He said, no, this could end up being a national story, and I kind of scoffed at it, and I think he's reminded me of Can I ask how close to Bodies of Water was the house? That house is, is, on, house that house is on Violet Avenue in the western section of Waterville, kind of near Colby College, and it's a couple blocks from Meselonsky's Stream. What do you um, say, Ben? Right, and then there's also a fire pond. And Meselonsky Stream goes into the Kennebec River, which flows eventually into the Atlantic Ocean. And this was 2011. I was just right. trying to remember how cold. It was very cold. It was I remember going home from work that night and letting the dogs out. And it's one of, you know, those really cold winter nights when you can see like every star yeah. in the sky. And just if I remember right, it was about 10 degrees out that night. And yeah. you're thinking, wow, that is cold for that little kid to be out there. And I think at the time, a lot of people were assuming she was an active little kid that she had wandered out of the house. Happens a lot. It happened a lot in Waterville. Right? Yeah. I remember it seemed to happen a lot in Waterville. <laughs> yeah, the first couple of years I was there, we must have had half a dozen stories about two-year-olds found wandering down the streets in their diapers. And I wrote a few of those stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By Sunday, December 18th, they the police held a press conference, and a lot of news organizations came, and she was officially missing. 
The focus was on the DiPietro's house. They seized the vehicles. They eventually, I think it was that weekend, had the family leave the house for two weeks. It was declared a crime scene. State police took over the case. The state police investigates all major crimes. Justin, his girlfriend Courtney, her baby, and Ayla all slept. The night of the disappearance, Justin had said uh, that Ayla was sleeping on the ground floor. And there was another baby. As I said, Alicia had a baby. Phoebe, the, Justin and Alicia's mother, wasn't home that night. So there were the three young adults and the three babies. Do you know what the square footage of the house was or how many rooms? Or It's a small cape, and looking at it, I, if I had to guess, I would say it was probably about 1,000 square feet. Okay, so, uh, so it didn't have a second floor. It's just one floor. Trista Reynolds wasn't there when this happened. She was living in Portland. She didn't drive or didn't have a car. She was on her way to a correction to visit her boyfriend. Right, the father of her second child. She got a phone call. So she went to Waterville and was questioned for a couple hours by the police. And Justin took a lie detector test. Police wouldn't say how he did. He said he smoked it. He smoked it. But the police didn't really give any information on how he did. Trista, the mother, also had to take one, but she couldn't complete it because of a quote-unquote, medical condition. No, he said he smoked it. Then another time, I thought he had said, I didn't know how I did. And then he said the police said he knows how he did. Steve McCausland, the state police spokesman, said he knows how he did. And so I think it was a story you did, Ben. Justin said that he... he wasn't shown the results. It's a matter of semantics. Right, and and McCausland said he knows how he did. But that was a lot of what was going on then as they continued to search for Ayla. There was a lot of nipping between the parents of the kid and a lot of veiled and not so veiled yes. accusations. Trista very quickly started blaming Justin. She made it clear that they weren't communicating with each other. She talked to the press a lot more. It was declared a criminal investigation in early 2012. Well, early in 2012, McCausland said that, that she did not leave the house on her own. And what, when did he say right. that straight, it doesn't pass the straight face test, but she was abducted. When was that? When I, I think it was late January. Oh, late January. I just remember so there was, that there quote. There was a flurry of activity. And yeah. It was like January yeah. 20th. He also said that the three adults in the house weren't being fully cooperative with the police. They, in turn, said that the police weren't telling them things, and they continued to search. They searched the waterways, the Kennebec River, which is uh, fairly one of Maine's bigger rivers, Several times they searched Meselonsky Stream, which I said runs near the house and runs into the mm-hmm. Kennebec and runs, kind of cuts Waterville in half. They got lots of tips, thousands, you know, but a tip isn't necessarily a news lead. It's, you know, people who think they saw a little blonde haired girl in a mall in Phoenix who looked yeah. just like Ada Reynolds. And well, I was telling that at some point after McCausland had asked for more tips, he was very specific at the end of the statement to say, we don't want to hear from psychics anymore. <laughs> Well, you never know. So a lot of little things happened in the past five years, but no major ones that would lead anyone to know what had happened to her. Aside from a lot of speculation and back and forth, there really, as far as the public goes and the legitimate press goes, there's no more information about what happened to her really than in the weeks after she disappeared. The last story about it, the last bigger bigger story about it, that the Morning Sentinel, which is is in Waterville and is the newspaper that has had the lion's share of the legitimate coverage of this. We're not talking about blogs and true crime TV shows 
and or podcast <laughs> or podcast. The last major story, the Sentinel Hand, was in May, where the family, the Reynolds family, you know, Trista Reynolds family, said that they were going to file a civil suit against Justin DiPietro because charges hadn't been brought against him. There's been nothing since then to report that I can find whether they actually filed that suit or not. A lot of people say they're going to file a suit and then they start talking to lawyers and find yeah. out, you know, you really don't have much of a case. And one of the issues is. And the Sentinel, about a year or so ago, talked to Bill Stokes, who is now a, and I hope I don't get this wrong, a Maine Superior Court judge. At the time, was an assistant AG about why nobody's been charged. And he couldn't really talk about the case specifically, but did point out prosecutors in our Ask a Lawyer, Matt Nichols of Nichols and Churchill in Portland, <laughs> is going to talk about this a little later, too, that you need enough evidence if you're a prosecutor to charge somebody and be confident if you believe, obviously prosecutors do, that they committed the crime, that they're going to be found guilty. If someone's found innocent, they can't be charged for that same crime again. So if you bring somebody you believe committed this crime to trial and they're found innocent because, or found not guilty as Matt would correct us, yes. because there wasn't enough evidence, and then later something comes up that shows, wow, this guy did it, you can't try him again. Most of the... News coming out of this over the past few years has been Trista Reynolds and her family trying to fire up prosecutors and law enforcement to charge Justin, the father. And there's been a lot of speculation on non-legitimate news sites about his complicity in it. What we know about Justin DiPietro is that he was in the house, that she broke her arm, because he fell on her, and both the hospital and police found no reason to believe that that wasn't true. He didn't know his daughter well before he started taking care of her. He had very little contact with her before she was 18 months old, and he and his mother. But he knew she existed. Parents. He knew she existed. We know that he called 911 and said, my daughter's not here. We know that he more or less cooperated with police, although they say he hasn't told them everything. We know that he took out an insurance policy on her, and Ben, I think you did a story saying that that's not really as suspicious. You talked to insurance agents who said people tend to do that for a variety of reasons, including being reassured that there will be money for the child's care in the future or their college education. There's different kinds of... It wasn't, I think it was for $10,000. But that's been one of the things that people have said, oh, well. But it was probably, I mean, if it was a $10,000 policy, I'm sure it wasn't ex wasn't very expensive. And if I mean, I have a $10,000 policy. My kids just through open enrollment that I filed yesterday yeah. for through work. Mm, okay. So, I mean, it's yeah. just standard. I mean, sure. yeah. And we know that he's had some scrapes with the law since this has happened. I think he had a DWI. He had a domestic assault conviction. He and his girlfriend, Courtney Roberts, who was in the house that night, are now no longer together. Mm -hmm. He has pretty much been quiet about all this. There's been, on some of the less legitimate media websites, there's been a lot of quoting Trista Reynolds and other people saying that there were signs he abused Ayla and a lot of other things like that that never were talked about really at the time. The police have never said seem to be just these kind of things that build up and start coming out out of people's frustration. She wrote a letter to the DA, Trista did, about a year and a half ago, the Kennebec County DA, Megan Maloney, asking that charges be brought against him for child endangerment. Megan Maloney said, it's not my case. 
passing on to the AG, and the AG said we have no evidence. That, we no have no evidence of child endangerment. It's a it's a case where everybody thinks they know what happened, but there really isn't a whole lot of evidence. So there was a little girl; she was reported missing. There's been various reports about evidence found in the house, but the police haven't said a whole lot about the quote unquote blood evidence, except for that there was or some evidence of blood, and you may remember it better than I do, found on the basement floor. So five years later, here we are. Ben, that you did a couple interviews with Justin DiPietro. His last name is pronounced DiPietro. And I know this because um, Dave Ling, photographer for the Morning Sentinel, uncovered one of Justin's nicknames is Peach or Peaches, as in DiPietro. DiPietro. But I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, that's good. So I just stopped pronouncing so his name five years later. <laughs> you had a couple interviews with him. You probably talked to him more than any other Everybody. reporter. That's true. So what were your impressions of Justin as a reporter and also just as a person taking in what was going on? Can we talk about that a little? Sure. Well, I mean, I'll start with the same day that you learned about the story. It was a Saturday. I I was on the schedule to work on Christmas, so I had a four-year-old son at the time, and we wanted to celebrate Christmas, so we just had Christmas a week early. So Santa us, came a week early. <laughs> right. Yeah, we were so good. I was so young, we could just kind of hams going in the oven. The house is full of all these Christmas smells, and I sit down on the computer, just kind of get away for a second, and saw this headline that there was an abducted child, and read just a few of the details that there was, you know, the, the description. I think it was a missing child that day, right? Not an abducted child. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So missing child, you know, the pajamas with daddy's princess, and mm-hmm. the cast, and everything, my instant thought was, well, this is going to be over in two hours, and it's going to be the father of jail, and it's going to have a terrible, tragic ending. See, my thought was it's going to be over in two hours, and they're either going to find her hiding under somebody's canoe, or mm-hmm. she fell in Meselonsky stream wandering away from home. Or she's in a snowbank, like there was some kid that they found in a snowbank, and I believe it was in that area, too. <laughs> like, he wasn't dead, he was just, like, yeah, like sitting in the snowbank. Well, Doug Harlow, veteran reporter at the Morning Sentinel, covered the early days. Um, you know, I did a little bit of the sort of the secondary stories for it. But it was in, uh, so much happened between her disappearance and when I finally talked to Justin. That's almost a, you know, several stories unto itself. But it was early January, the New Year, New Year's Day or the day after. I was invited, and there's such a, I, <laughs> I kind of want to go into detail about it. Being outside, you know, because it was at that point it was a full-fledged media circus. Petro House was basically taken over by state police for a week, maybe two weeks. But when the police tape came down and the family moved back in, all these media trucks showed up. So Violet Avenue, tiny little side street residential areas, just festooned with you know TV satellite trucks and reporters all bundled up against the cold. And we're all just waiting outside for someone, anyone, to show up. At some point, Justin and his brother show up in the SUV. It's featured prominently in a lot of photographs from the time. Justin hops out, and he's walking to the house. Everybody's clamoring to get his attention. And just as he's about to, to go into the house, there's a lull in all the, the cacophony of all the reporters. And I say, Justin, bend the camera from the morning sentinel. Can I talk to you? And Justin walks in the house, and the door closes. But I could see through the window that he's pausing there, maybe talking to a family member. Maybe 30 seconds later, the door opens. Justin leans halfway out and says, Ben, come on in. So I leave all these, Ooh. you know. The, Why do you think he did that? Well, there's, in the intervening weeks, there was sort of like a lot of groundwork that was being laid. So. Between when she disappeared and when this happened. Right, because I had gotten an anonymous tip as to where Justin was during those two weeks while the state police were 
right, taken over his house. We find out that he was standing with uh, Heidi Tudela and the Tudela family, the family that's involved in right, life the insurance, insurance family. Right, yeah. so he and his family were staying there. So we got an address, and at one point, I think it was maybe a week after Christmas, I drove up there, you know, just did a cold knock on the door. It's really nerve-wracking. Like, you know, drove up to the house, saw Justin's SUV parked in the driveway, knew conclusively that he was there. So then that's when you start getting butterflies in your stomach and you're like, oh my God, can I really do this? Like, what does this mean? So I, I walk up to the door and knock and I see this woman come. People who are listening are going to hate me because it, because. Yeah, he saying? was giving my to like a. But I have a memory, and I think, and I think this is one of the reasons that Justin may have, aside from the groundwork, which I think was the big thing, is that he hadn't talked to the press at all, and he brought a statement over to the police department. At the time, was across the street from the Morning Sentinel, and you were working that night. Somebody from the police station, and you ran across to the police station, got the statement, and and if I remember right, that was the first story that had his his side of the story. There had been a lot of Trista, Trista, and it seems like this all happened over such a long period of time. But between the time she disappeared in in the interview that you're about to talk about, it was only a few weeks. It right. just seems like it was this long period of time because there was so much going on every day and there was so much media there. But do you remember that, that you were the the Morning Sentinel and the Kennebec Journal were the first ones to print that statement he had given to police and the first ones to kind of... Right. They got in a lot of trouble for for not giving for not disseminating that statement to all the news out by virtue of working in the same town and reporters just marching into the police station every day and getting to know people who had a decent relationship with that department so they gave us the scoop so it was a you know it was like two three, two or three paragraphs yeah it wasn't I, long at all and it was basically right. i don't know what happened you know i love my daughter and i want her to be found type of thing right. you know it, it didn't say much right but so anyway you're going to the trudella's house yeah so i knock on the door and you're very nervous very nervous i'm not sure what's going to happen feeling certain that i'm going to get yelled at or chased off and anyway. you're very sensitive, so that would have bothered you quite a bit. If they had <laughs> Reporters get yelled at quite a bit. Yeah. Even by people other than their editors. <laughs> well, I should say, you know, before uh, this story, this was by and far the greatest, biggest news story I'd ever been involved in. Before going to the Morning Sentinel, just a year prior, I'd been working in northwestern Colorado for, you know, a county of 9,000 people writing stories. It may be the biggest story you ever work on. It's true. It's true. But yeah, I was doing like kindergarten graduations before that. Literally just the worst assignments you can imagine. Not that there's anything wrong with <laughs> you moms out there. Right. We love the kids. At the <laughs> <laughs> but suddenly like being thrust into sort of like this national story and not knowing how to handle it. So being very, very nervous that I was going to blow it. Anyway, knock on the door. The door opens. Really what ended up being a really nice lady, uh, Heidi Tadella, opens the door and she looked shaken, and I, I'll remember this to the day I died. She had one teardrop just hung in her eye, thinking that, oh, my God, the press knows that we're here. Now the circus mm. is going to come to our yard. So I, I talked to her. She said, you know, that she didn't come to the Sentinel. And can I ask you some questions? Or is Justin here? And she said, look, I don't want to answer any questions for the press. And I said, that's fine. You, know, you, don't, you don't need to do it. I mean, it's my job to come here and, and ask questions. And if you don't want to answer that's totally your right and I'm happy to move on. So we ended up having sort of a off the record conversation, which happens quite a bit. And I think that was just really just an opportunity to establish trust with the family. You know, that I was able to, to go back 
to the paper and talk to my editor and say, I found them, but we're not going to report on it because they had nothing to say. It was all on the record. And then also just to, you know, kind of keep that in our pocket at the Sentinel. Was your editor okay with that? I mean, I don't know anything about newspapers. Yeah, and if you went back and said, yeah, I I do know where they are, and I did talk, but it was only off the record, and, you know, I don't really want to report on anything. I mean, I just don't know what an editor would be like. That's bullshit. You it it always depends on the circumstances. Yeah. And and as Ben said, or um, a TV show. TV if it was TV, Ben would have crashed in there. <laughs> no, Slopped he would have said, "Oh, it's all off the record," and, and then and then, then screwed him over. Text. In any case like that, you have to weigh what the advantages are to the disadvantages. And as Ben said, the Sentinel was the only media outlet that knew where he was. And since they didn't say much to write a story, hey, he's here, but they had nothing to say. Yeah. It wouldn't have been that great a story, and it would have ticked everybody off. And it would have ruined your trust. With and the, and he was doing, yeah, a professional job of building trust with the source, you know, and you mm-hmm. kind of do that. You make this investment into those who are a little cynical about it. It's not, oh, I'm going to build trust and then screw these people yeah. over. It's, I want to tell their story, too. And the way to tell their story is to show them that I that I have respect for, for their privacy and for what they may or may not have to say instead of just rushing out there. And, right. right. So I think, you know, flash forward a week or two weeks later when I'm in Justin's driveway, I think, you know, he said, oh, that's the Morning Sentinel guy. That's the guy who came up to the to the door and knocked and didn't, you know, blow right. the whistle for all the TV trucks to show up. So it paid off big yeah. time. And you could say, in your face to all those TV trucks out there <laughs> saying, day show. So I got invited into the house and the whole family was there. Justin's brother Lance was there. Mother was there. There may have been one or two other folks. And was this this was right when they moved back into the house after state police having custody of the house for two weeks? Right, right? and it was completely overturned. There was fingerprint dust. Oh wow! So they don't all. clean up after themselves. No, they do not. Wow, they that did. must really be, that must really be a bummer. Sure. You haven't been in your house for two weeks, and then you go in and it's a friggin' mess. And they've gone through all your stuff. No. Yeah, it was it was overturned. You know, they invited me in, took a seat in the living room. Immediately, Justin said, this is all off the record. And I said, that's fine. You know, it's just kind of getting to know each other, establishing trust. So Justin went on to tell his side of the story all off the record. There were a few opportunities to sort of coax him onto the record. Oh, that's, you know, you know pretty standard stuff. That that's I'd fine. like my daughter to be found. I mean, just you would expect somebody to say, and, you know, so all the, the background information that he provided during this off the record. You know, Justin spoke at length. He was very comfortable. It's, it struck me as very intelligent. He told his side of the story, and of course, because it's off the record, you know, I can't share those details. But let's just say afterward, I felt like he had been completely railroaded. And I remember going home being like, oh my God, you know, talking to my wife, like, Justin is in such a bad spot right now where nobody believes him. And, you know, I feel for the guy. I feel like we should have, I, I actually said to my wife, I feel like we should have him over Mm. And did he seem genuinely upset that she was missing, that something had happened to his daughter? Did he seem, you know, as a father yourself, did you feel his pain at all? Or did he just seem like a 21 or 22 or whatever year old guy telling you a story? He seemed to be like somebody who's just in a a really difficult position, Was, was handling it well. I don't want to say professionally, but... You know, just handling it with grace, I suppose. You know, and I, I would use myself as a sounding board in that way because my kid had just turned four, and I remember quite well, like sort of the twenty-month phase. You know, mm. you start to get into the the terrible twos, and 
you know, wondering, well, what would I be like in this situation? It's it's a really difficult question to answer. It might have been two or three days later, maybe a week later at the most, Justin began to invite in media outlets for right. on-the-record interviews. Right, and he appeared on national TV, right? I want to say the Today Show. Right. The Today Show is the one I remember. They were both of them. Both Another. of them. He and Trista had, like, competing Today Show <laughs> about his guilt or innocence. It's gotten so that he was demonized, whatever happened in that house, to the point where people couldn't say anything good about him without, right. you, you know, the assumption of guilt. And, and, you know, logically, something happened in that house. The logical assumption is he and, the, and his sister and his girlfriend know what happened. It would be very difficult for them not to, and they're not telling the truth. But that seems to be what state police... Have been, right, have, but even if and implied. even if she did wander off somehow, and they just for some reason are somehow guilty of doing something that allowed that to happen, and aren't saying, I mean, you wouldn't know. Like, what if they all went out and left the kids sleeping there? Like, oh, they'll, you know, they'll just they're asleep. Let's go out or something like that. Right. And left the kids alone there and somehow early reports, and this was like the first 24 hours and it changed quickly, was that they were having a party. And then it turned out, no, there was no party. It was these three young adults, three little kids having a quiet Friday night at home. Hmm. There wasn't activity of cars coming and going or them going out. And, and you have to picture the neighborhood, too. It's a lot of little tapes fairly close together on a quiet street and mm -hmm. those of us who live on streets like that may know if you're sitting in your living room watching tv and your neighbor pulls out of the driveway at 10 o'clock at night or you hear it and you yeah. say oh i wonder where he's going <laughs> this time of night and that is but anyway were you going somewhere oh so yeah um so there was sort of a <laughs> like a glass nose period with the DePetros and the media where several outlets have been invited in for on the record and I was invited. So this is the second time I'm meeting Justin, and this might have been maybe two or three days after the first. You know, I think I was getting him at the sort of at the tail end of several interviews, so, you know, he, he seemed worn out, and he seemed, well, I, I'd say my, my impressions changed at that point, to the point where I was, might have rescinded your Your, your invitation. Party. Right. The Morning Sentinel interviewed him on January 2nd. He also went on the Today Show and pleaded for Ayla's safe return. On January 4th, you interviewed him the second time, and Justin also challenged Nancy Grace to spend a day with him. Right. And that's when he talked about how she broke her arm. Yeah, and he seemed, uh, you know, during that conversation, he seemed sort of animated or agitated, high energy. Right. I think part of the issue was that the media frenzy was pretty much running the show at that point. And that it was Trista and Justin and their various camps and factions and stuff were having like competing interviews. It became more about them being on TV and being interviewed and who was saying what about whom. And, and I remember Phoebe DePietro made the possible easy mistake to make of saying that she was home the night Ayla disappeared and she wasn't home the night Ayla disappeared and people, or that she didn't hear anything that night, and she wasn't home that night, and then people would pick that apart and use that well. So obviously something happened before that night, and she misspoke, and now right. she, and there's been nothing to, to ever, any evidence ever that she was nothing except for a grandmother and a mother who had concern about caring for 
her her son's daughter. Her explanation was that police investigators asked the family not to discuss any details from that night. So she was put in a corner. I think it was actually, you know, the way the question was posed was like, well, did you hear anything that night? And if she were to say, well, I wasn't there that night, then that would be revealing something that investigators mm, didn't the public yeah. know. And so I think she just kind of nodded and you know, said, nope. I remember feeling at the time that a lot of Everybody was competing to get stories and to get one little nugget other people didn't have. And that's when I began to feel like, and I felt this way almost more about the Trista Reynolds side of things than the Justin DiPietro side of things, that she and her family were kind of getting caught up in the excitement. And that's not to minimize her grief or her how upset she was, but that it can be heady to be to get so much attention. A lot of things just started getting out of hand and they had competing vigils. And there was a vigil in Waterville in mid-January, a few weeks after it happened, on the steps of City Hall. And it was the first time Justin and Trista had spoken, I think, since Ayla disappeared because they didn't have a relationship. They, they had been competing over her custody. Trista had had her drug problems and he, he had the feeling it was obviously not whatever there was of a relationship wasn't much of anything before this happened. So they weren't going to be calling each other and comforting each other. You know, there's, I, I would feel, even no matter how I felt about the baby's father, that I would call him privately and say, not only, hey, what happened, but also, how are you, how are you doing? And yeah. that type of thing. But that didn't happen. So there was this vigil, I remember it was a cold January day in front of City Hall in Waterville, which is the first time the two of them spoke and there were photos of them talking to each other. And But then after that, things just fell apart and it was just... Well, that was that was such a huge day and I think that was the 29th maybe? It would have been like, I think it was the third vigil in front of... Whatever vigil where Trista and Justin see each other for the first time since Ayla's disappearance was the same day that came out that there had been some blood was discovered on the basement floor. Right, and that was the 29th. And that was, I believe that was the same yeah. day that, it, you know, quote, didn't pass the straight face test and that the, you know, the, the three people who were in the house at the time, the three adults that were in the house at the time of the disappearance aren't fully disclosing anything they know. So it was just this bombshell day. Earlier, before that vigil took place, I had been contacted, I, I think Trista contacted me and said, hey, would you like to meet up before before this vigil? I'm going to be at Friendly's in Waterville. And I'd never met her before. I'd never been able to get her on the phone. Before. And I just want to say, as someone who, who used to go to Friendly's in Waterville before it closed, it's a great place to have a private meeting. Because <laughs> right. there was never anyone there. <laughs> this parking lot was the size of like three football fields. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was exactly that busy. It was Saturday Late morning, early afternoon, maybe. So I'm meeting Tristan for the first time. Her mother is there and her stepfather. Her stepfather. He's a really great guy. And I should just pause briefly right now and say that everybody I met on maternal side, a paternal side, everybody was really kind. I, I, I really don't, at this point in time, with, with there having been no charges or convictions or anything like that, you know, I don't have really a bad thing to say about anybody, as odd as that might sound. And I think that's one thing that, as a reporter, you kind of bring to it, is you met these people, you talked to them, you had a lot of conversations with them that nobody else, except for maybe your wife, is ever going to know what was said. And so you see them as human beings, whereas people, you know, on one level, other people at the papers and stuff who don't deal with them as much. But then the public, the people watching the Nancy Grace show, who may mm. live in Nebraska or something, see them as caricatures 
or see them as kind of these superficial symbols of something and this can attribute all sorts of things where you actually see them and were involved with them as human beings. And Jeff Hansen, that was that's his name, the stepfather's right, name, right? Yeah. And he was he's very been very instrumental over the years, including currently in trying to keep the case in the public eye. He's like he's like no longer a member of the family. You know, there there was a lot of off the record conversation at that restaurant. How long was the whole meeting in the restaurant? I think we were there for an hour. Now, did you go by yourself? Just me. Just you? Yeah. Now, what were your impressions? You talked about what your impressions of Justin were when you sat down and talked with him and his family. What were your first impressions of Trista and her family, aside from everybody being kind? I really liked her. She was, she makes you feel at ease. She has a really great way with, prior to all that, you feel like there's such a barrier between Right. As a reporter, between yourself and this situation. After meeting her, I just felt like I was in and I was a part of it. And right. It was basically just like an ask me anything moment. I was elated, you know, as a reporter and just as a person to have met this person and, you know, learned more about her experience, as painful as it was. You know, to go back to Trista and her, you know, how her behavior in the early days is is, is viewed by other people as being, you know, sort of grandstanding or, you know, being a publicity hound. You know, there were things that we talked about at Friendlies that kind of put it in perspective for me that, that state police strongly feel that they have their man. As the days and weeks would go on, it'd be more and more clear that you know, they haven't come out and said it, but it, all the implications are there that they feel that either Justin or his sister or Justin's girlfriend at the time, Corporal Roberts, had something to do with this crime. I believe that state police were coaching Trista to take these steps, to Trista, go on national TV. Trista, here are your talking points. I mean, okay. she I, she never said that specifically. Um, said that some of this is me reading between the lines, but there is something that she said to me that day. This is the day that the, the revelations about the blood in the basement came out. She said that that story has been leaked there is a news source out of Boston. There was a leak somewhere. They got the information early, but you know, according to Trista, state police said to them, you know, please hold on to the story. Please don't release it because what state police wanted to do, it was very well choreographed, was they were going to get Trista and Justin together in this plaza next to City Hall, and that's when the story was going to break. So they and they think that by by having her going on the news, she would kind of be uh, stirring things up, yeah. and maybe somebody would would break that was right yeah. going back to friendlies i mean everything that, that trista said about how things were going to unfold that day came true i mean there you know the story was held it was leaked sooner than state police wanted but this tv station did publish that information from that moment on i felt that anything that trista told me was coming from state police was accurate whether or not state police were correct in their investigation or the conclusions that they were drawing and implying to the public you know, who's to say whether that's correct? But as far as feeling confident that state police, you know, that they were going after Justin as a crime suspect, like I, I think that's, we can never say it as clearly as that in the newspaper, but that seems pretty cool, as an, even as a casual observer. I remember the quote-unquote cup of blood story, and you and I going back and forth on the phone. I think we, I think we started by email and then ended up going on the phone about what exactly police were saying about the blood in the basement and what they had actually said, what we could report about it. Police had said there was 
a lot of evidence found in the basement. And I think then Steve McCausland, the police, state police spokesman, said when he was kind of pushed on it, said at one time it was more than a cup of blood. It was very unclear what blood they had actually found. I think, for instance, a website just recently in May quoted Trista Reynolds as saying that state police showed her pictures of blood all over the house. I read that and said, well, we had a lot of trouble nailing down this little, or I don't know if you want to call it a little bit, but this specific bit of blood in the cellar. I don't remember anyone ever talking about Now, well, even that cupful was, that is ultimately attributable to Jeff Hans that we, when we reported on it in print, you know, we, we couched very carefully that it was coming from this website that purports to have inside information from state. And I think that's the conversation you and I were having to do with the story that night. Right. Who, what are, who said it? Right. What are state police saying about it? And I have almost a vague memory of state police kind of confirming at one point and then kind of going back on it a little. I, I think that state police and their spokesman sort of developed a language or it was it was all very sort of nod and wink you know the stuff that would come from the reynolds family uh, yeah. jeff hansen you know and we're talking about into the spring months i think it was after you know maybe april or may and i think they're still being advised to, to sort of keep things fresh you know state police is in a position where they can't release any info any more information but they can leak it to Jeff's site. And Jeff, because of that friendlies meeting, he interests to have a certain amount of credibility. And, and I almost wonder if state police asked them to call you. I think so. Yeah. I, I really do. Because there, you know, all the times before that, that I had tried to contact Trista and got nowhere. You know, I think, and part of that might be because I was reporting so heavily from Justin's side. It's difficult from, from somebody outside the newspaper business, when, you know, somebody delivers unpopular news you think it's Morning Sentinel is in this particular camp, okay. not in our camp. But we are just reporting on what people say. We're not taking any sides whatsoever just because, you know, within quotes, he says something that's inflammatory to the other camp and that we're endorsing. And it's difficult with that story and a lot of other stories that you get one person's side of it and you call the other person up and, they're like, and they don't want to talk to you. Right. And you try to convince them, well, we already have this side. We would really like to say more than you just would not comment for and if they don't comment, people read the story and say, oh, the newspaper is all on his side. And people don't understand that most journalists legitimately want as complete a story as they can. They're not taking sides. You know, it's no fun to take sides. It's more fun to get the full story. Right. And find out what happened before Nancy Grace and Boston TV stations <laughs> and things do. Also, around March is when you had a sit-down interview with the Tudellas and Justin. Right, and that went horribly. It was awful. And if there's anything in my career as a reporter that I would consider a black eye, it's that interview and that story. That's the family where the entire DiPietro family stayed while their house was being investigated by state police. And uh, the Tadella's son and Justin are, you know, childhood buddies. You know, the Tadella's, I think, you know, if Justin hit a rough patch, while he was growing up, you know, the doors were always open to tell us right. that he could stay there. In that story, before you go into what was so awful <laughs> about it, Justin and the Tadellas contend that a kidnapping was plausible, right. that Justin said there were good reasons for it, but he didn't say what they were, and this goes against everything the state police had said. The state police had, I think, come right out and said, right, there's no evidence at all that there was a kidnapping and that that, that child was kidnapped. 
and that was where the whole straight face thing came from. Right. It doesn't, it their doesn't story doesn't pass a straight face test. So what, so what happened there? Well, I, you know, to give it some context, that week, now this was never reported on, this is, you know, firmly in the, you know, in the realm of rumors. What my gut tells me that these rumors are, that there's a hint of tr truth to them. But I think there was a grand jury convened during that week, of course, that, you know, and ultimately who knows whether or not that, that happened, only the jurors and the people involved. But in any case, I think it was a really stressful week for that family. And obviously if there was a grand jury convened, they didn't vote to indict Justin DePietro or anybody else because then that would have happened publicly. So if there was one convened, it meant they didn't find enough evidence to prosecute anybody in the case. Right. So I, I believe that I was invited up there, not as damage control, but as a way to sort of get ahead of the story. If it was a grand jury case yeah. and if it was going south on them, I, I believe that they thought it was going south just due to the energy that was in there. But I, I remember returning from this interview, you know, and my colleagues in the newsrooms, you know, wondering, how did it go? How did it go? And I was like, I lost control of that interview right away. It was, it bombed. And part of it was there were so many people. Initially, they wanted the thing on the record and they didn't want to even talk to Justin at all, but it was just going to be, you know, sort of the, the head of the household, Mr. Tadella. I'm drawing a blank on his first name, but it was, it was basically his opportunity to talk. I remember him wanting it very much on his terms. What came out of it was basically just uh, basically like a feature story on this family up on the hill. Taking care of Justin. And it just, it was not Can you, well uh, received by our readers. <laughs> although I have to say at that point, anything that wasn't pointing to him as being a child killer was not going to be well received. By our readership, there was not a lot of support for him in Waterville. Can you explain a little for people maybe who aren't familiar with what it's like for a reporter to go into an interview? How do they kind of wrest control of the interview from you? Oh boy, but I would say as a reporter, what you want to do is get one-on-one -on -one wherever possible. And How many people were there? Do you remember? Uh, Justin, Heidi Tadella, Mr. Tadella their son, and maybe their other son, so I, I believe five yeah. plus me. Yeah. So there was a lot of crosstalk, and, you know, basically as a reporter, what you want to do is, you know, maintain control of the conversation. You want to be the person to pose the questions and direct it and lead it in sort of a natural flow where you can, you know, gain information, mm -hmm. make conclusions, and that sort of thing. Right, but and get the get... questions answered rather right. than somebody answering the question with their talking point. Right, or, you know, this is mm -hmm. the question that you should be so it yeah, just went them. off yeah. the rails very quickly. And, you know, of course, at that point, when it's so difficult to get access to Justin DePietro at this point, or anybody who was, you know, in the house the night of the disappearance, that you want to do whatever you can to keep those channels open. So if you're invited up there and you come home basically empty-handed, do you write nothing? Right. And risk closing off that avenue of communication. Or do you write a puff piece about the family and <laughs> what they think of everything and that... Yeah. Right. I mean, I, you know, you don't want to... It's not like you want to do them favors because that's yeah. not professional, no, no. but you want to... You, you definitely don't want to extinguish whatever ember is left. In it. And at that point, too, you do the story because, you know, as opposed to the first time you went over to their house and didn't do a story because... You were the only one who knew Justin and his family were there. The stakes were different. But this time you do a story because you've talked to these people and everybody's interested in what they have to say. 
Right. And even if they're controlling the message, you have information from these people that nobody else has. And even if it's not riveting or not not compelling, and that doesn't advance what happened so much as kind of spin. Right. Now, did you get, you said that it was not well received. Did you, that, were there a bunch of letters to the editor saying, I can't believe you printed that story? Or There may have been. Most of what I saw, though, would be on comic boards. You know, these numbers might not mean anything in 2016, but for the Morning Sentinel, you know, these stories would routinely get 300 comments and up, which was yeah. which was very rare at that time. Um, you know, comments might be through the roof nowadays. And but. it's and it's hard to write her. You don't want to have people calling people names or saying people are guilty, saying things, but it's very hard to ride hurt on controlling or moderating the yeah, comments you when don't you're getting like, many. Right, and you don't accuse you, oh, well, they're they're just deleting all the, all the negative comments that are right. comments against, they're trying to control what people are saying about about the story. You right. Know, you want to be able to, the whole know. reason you have comments is so you can have this discourse by readers and get them involved, <laughs> so you don't want to cut off the internet that's yeah, right. it's a well, double-edged sword. Part, part of the fear, too, was, aside from the comment boards, there's also all the blogs are going. It's very much like a presidential campaign at this point, right. where there's, there's and, two and camps. It, and that was around the same time Jeff Hansen started Answers for Ayla blog. It was right around that same time. He would blog about how the investigation was going and stuff, and Jeff Hansen being Trista's stepfather in that was treated by a lot of media as this definitive state police source or something that information was coming mm -hmm. out of. So there was a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, and, and, and you know, blogs for representing all different opinions and viewpoints and theories in, in the Justin camp or the Trista camp. Anyway, this thing was blowing up. So conducted that interview, one of the editors of the Morning Sentinel at the time decided that we weren't going to publish the story for another two weeks because it felt like we were just doing the bidding of the Tadell as if we printed it in a timely fashion. And it was sort of evergreen because there was really nothing. For people who aren't familiar with newspaper terminology, evergreen is a story that can run any time because it's not breaking news. Yeah. So, But in the meantime, since this interview had occurred, sort of like the pro-Justin blogs were out, you know, reporting that, oh, there's this, you know, there's a big story coming in the Morning Sentinel. Mm. And then why is the Morning Sentinel not running this right and so you know and the other camps get wind of it and you think it's going to be like you know, some revelatory piece of journalism and, <laughs> yeah. you know so expectations are building and building and building and bill stokes gave me a call wow to give me shit about that and other. he was again the assistant ag at the time yeah he quoted some lines he quoted lines <laughs> oh that's brutal <laughs> right. that would be yeah had you heard his tone yeah, yeah. but because he read it well because yeah. it, i mean because there was really nothing to report on you know that's when the freak out the writerly job one I mean, of the things about that is that and this was March, yeah. so it had been. You guys can do the math. So many months since she had disappeared, <laughs> and there wasn't a lot to report. So that that whole initial frenzy, where every day there was something new, and what what's going to happen today? And is today the day they're going to find her body or find the evidence that leads to a charge? And that had all kind of faded, and it had become. And this, I think, this was around the time of the crazy blogs that started just printing all sorts of crazy stuff. Facts that weren't really facts started becoming part of the narrative, and part of the problem is there was this vacuum because nothing was happening. They searched and searched and searched. 
They couldn't find her. Granted, the snow was beginning to melt and they could start searching more, but there was nothing new. There was nothing more. They had done pretty much everything they could. When they get to the point where they're feeding stuff, and granted that started early on, to pressure somebody into talking by feeding bits of information out, and they didn't have any bits of information left to feed at this point. So so this vacuum started existing, and I think the whole thing became this, why isn't anyone being charged? Why aren't the people in that house being charged? It just became this big repetitive thing that built on itself. Well, it was around that time, so you know, I think the last major event in this sort of, a, you know, let's call it the contiguous Ayla cycle was Ayla's second birthday, and there was a vigil held in Monument Square. And a birthday party for Ayla. And that was, you know, that was passed upon by the pro-Justin, anti-Trista blogs as being, you know, inappropriate in tone. And you could make that case. Right, that it was exploitive and gratuitous. They're having this birthday party for Ayla. Ayla's not here, mm. you know, and I think they even had a cake, if I remember mm. right. It wasn't. It definitely wasn't a festive thing, but that's no. why I go back to, to believing that, that Stacey okay. Lee may have been, you know, coaching her to, you know, to hold these events. Yeah, and, and to keep things keep it in the news, keep it, keep it keep going, the pressure on. And and once spring came, April and May, they started looking in the waterways again. They drained a diversion channel mm-hmm. in the river, and they recovered some items from the Kennebec River that turned out to have nothing to do with the case that caused some excitement. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was shortly after that vigil, the birthday vigil, that my editor at the time came up to me and said, "I think maybe it's time to give the the Ayla story a break. Maybe it's time to you know sort of." shift down and i remember being hesitant at the time because that was all i was doing at that point i think (laughs) i was doing like you know two three stories a week for almost five solid months right i mean i was getting like six hours of sleep every night because i was reading all the blogs just on the off chance hoping that there would be you know not because you know this is the morning sentinel's home turf and it's a natural story and we got the bdn it's covering very heavily bangor daily news right out of bangor and they're spending a lot of resources covering it and we do not want to miss anything. As the hometown paper, it's your story, and you don't want anyone to know something about it that you don't know. Yeah. Because it's, and I think every newspaper feels that way about a story that happens in their town. But this is our story. We're the ones who should know more than anybody else. We should be the definitive source on the story. And then you get into this thing like, my God, like with something like this, especially with the amount of social media and, and website and blogs, it becomes almost this insanely out of hand thing right. that you can't read it all. And then you read stuff and you're like, wait, is that true or not? Is this something we reported or not? You know, I keep seeing this. I can't remember if we reported it. And then it right. becomes a crazy thing. Yeah. But things just really didn't progress. In fact, there was a Waterville attorney, John Nail, who offered a $30,000 reward for information that would lead to a conviction in the case. It expired in June of 2012, with no takers. You know, it it felt like six or seven months after she had disappeared, every avenue to figure out what had happened had been exhausted, and it was just going to be a waiting game where something was either going to turn up or somebody was finally going to say something. um, Someone will find a Right. And they say, you know, they've said it's not a cold case. A cold case is when you stop investigating. They're still five years later investigating it. It it comes to a point when there's nothing 
else there to look at. And I remember people saying, well, when fall comes and people are out hunting, that's when they'll find something. And I remember you and I having a conversation that I had hiked up somewhere in the Kennebec Highlands. And you get up there and you look and you can do this almost on any high point of land in central Maine or farther north or west. And you look out and you say, there's nothing out there but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of trees and mountains. You're taking a little tiny 20-month-old body. How does anyone ever... Well, you go anywhere northwest of Bangor right. and it's and like it's just townships. And not, I mean, right. it's... you had been on a hike, maybe Mount Phillip or somewhere like that, and, it, and, and you had had kind of the same thought. Tell me if you remember that. And we had, we had both... Well, the rumor mill, too, was that in sort of like the anti-Justin approach for the blogs and websites or whatever else, that everybody wanted Rome to be searched because Rome was a childhood home or an ancestral home for the Demetra. And for people who aren't familiar with the area, Rome is a very wooded, I won't say remote because it, by main standards, it's not remote, but it's an area with a lot of woods and lakes and some small hills that's west of Waterville, of maybe a 15-minute drive. And, it, and it's where the quote-unquote North Pond Hermit <laughs> used to hang out, which is a story for another day. But that's one thing that no matter how much land there is out there, lots of times people who kill someone and go hide them in the woods go somewhere where they're familiar with. Like there was the guy who killed someone in Maine. I can't remember all the details, but they found her body on his stepfather's farm in New Hampshire because yes. in northern New Hampshire, because that's where he used to go hunting, you know, he could have hid her body anywhere. But also there's the theory, and I don't think it's just a theory, I think it's a fact that when people do that, they they frequently go back because they start obsessing and getting nervous and, oh, did I bury the body deep enough? Did I hide it well enough? Did I really put it in a remote enough place? So sometimes what the police do is they'll monitor, and they had, they had seized his like car. Like a GPS, like a GPS yeah. monitor on a car. I remember doing a story, and it, it, you know, it's the kind of story that you can't publish because there's no story to tell. But I remember calling. Oh, when does that ever stop anybody? <laughs> I call it because it was a Ford Explorer, I believe, that Justin drove, and of course there was a lot of you know speculation that right. that, that Justin may have done it. So um, I called a Ford dealership and asked if the car, if that model car, model and year, would have had some sort of you know some onboard computer that would let it you know. It seems to me it was an older model. Right. Yeah. They said it, it had it been maybe two or three years older, right. it would have had a computer that drove so many miles on this date. So they could have established a, a, a radius. But I think that's a, a thing a lot of people fall into, you know, the kind of amateur sleuths out there who think, oh, if only I was helping the police, we'd solve this case. There's all these quote-unquote obvious things the police should have done. And people don't realize the police know their jobs way better. And they probably are doing them. They're just not, gonna just not telling us telling at every step of the way. The other thing I had thought about, if you are looking at somebody in that house did something, say they did really put her to bed at 10 o'clock and didn't see her in bed at 10 o'clock. She was reported missing at 8.49 the next morning. That's a lot of hours for somebody. And I know I was saying earlier that, you know, in a little neighborhood, you hear a car coming and going, but somebody could go early in the morning. And I mean, that's you can go a lot of places in that amount of time. Come back in, home. People in Maine or any rural state, you can drive for hours. I mean, you right. drive everywhere. If you live in a small town or you live in Waterville's a small city, for Maine it's a city, but a lot right. of places would be considered a small town. But I mean, you drive. You drive everywhere. To, yeah, and you drive. Well, 
two miles and you're out of town. Right. And you can drive five miles right. and be almost to the Canadian border. Even I mean, if five you're, hours and be almost to the right. Canadian border. Even, I mean, or less. Or from or less. less. You're, yeah, if you, you're, you're at the Canadian border in about two or two and a half hours. And, then, and like I said, the, even in the two states' biggest cities like Bangor, Portland, and Lewis and Auburn, there aren't acres and acres no. and miles and miles of suburbs. You are within minutes in, being in the a rural country. Area. Yeah. And a lot even, of even within the city limits, which is why I think. Yeah, right. Right, and yeah, Yeah. Waterville has a lot of wilderness in the city limits. There's, you know, Cory Road, the Cory Road area. That was the most baffling detail, little footnote from all of this was that day, and I think it was March. It was an unseasonably warm day. You know, they had a had a big search throughout the county that day, and I think what reading between the lines, they did it because it was unseasonable, and it was the first thaw since. So that would have been like March of 2012. Right. So that you know had their you know, just to put it in blunt terms, right. had there been a body disposed, they would have been and thawing out. Along the banks of the Mesolonsi stream, they, they found a body. It was not Ailes, but it was a body that had been there for... Steve Brandon. Right, for right. a decade. Ah. Right. He, had, he had been reported missing in February of 2004. Wow. It had no relation at all to Ayla Reynolds' disappearance at all. And it was actually not outside the city limits. It wasn't in some remote place, even. Right, it was like... Near houses, I yeah, think. yeah. So they found they he had been there that whole yeah, time. Yeah, his body, had, but it was on the banks. Like had, the story of a Joseph Butler who wandered the banks. Right, and, and I think it, it was possibly even so he probably jumped off the a bridge or something. No, or? no he, he, shot he, oh, he, he shot himself. himself. But he wandered, and if you look down, I mean, there's a lot of Depression you know, it's not this clean, pristine, manicured. You know, we're not, you know, Connecticut or something. There's <laughs> there's yeah, decades there's and decades of leaves and, and brush and shopping carts and yeah. downed trees. And there are places people don't want. Oh, here's my stream. I'm going to want to No, you down don't walk down there. Yeah. Because it's messy and full of brush. And yeah. That was a very unsettling. No, so here's no. a guy who had been missing since 2004. So he'd been missing for eight years. He was right there. Right. And That's the last nobody thing you expect to hear at a, at a press conference. This water goes just gets streamed its news. It does. <laughs> so here we are, five years later. My feeling is what it's been since maybe mid-2012. Probably investigation isn't going to, and I'm not saying this to demean the police, but I think it's past the point where investigation is going to solve it. Um, it's not like some old case where all of a sudden they can check the DNA or something mm-hmm. like that. They yeah. checked everything. You assume that they oh, that kind of thing. What can you and, find and out? And it's yeah. going to be it's going to be somebody stumbling on something, or somebody with a guilty conscience finally confessing. And but the three people in that house, I have to say, have been very silent. They've yes. been, they've gone on with their lives very quietly without a lot of fanfare. Right? Justin DePietro has been in the news a few times for I, there was a DWI OUI. And the domestic violence thing a couple of years ago that he was in court was didn't confronted. Someone, yeah, uh, I was gonna say, didn't she show up? Portland, and yeah. her mother and yeah. um, Trista showed up. And at there was a yeah. public scene out on the sidewalk in front of the court with a lot yes. of yelling. Very Maury Povich. Yes, <laughs> it was like yeah, it was kind of like the Maury Povich <laughs> show or Jerry Springer. I mean, what's your feeling on it? I, I had the same exact take that it's going to be somebody somebody talks, you know. Oh, maybe yeah. it, maybe it happens inadvertently. Well, I keep thinking that maybe somebody's going to have too much to drink somebody. Yeah. yeah, that's what. But even if they found her body, that won't that won't solve what happened. But somebody might find her. I mean, like 
Geraldine Larger, the woman that got lost on the Appalachian Trail. I thought she would never be found. Right. She hadn't been found. I thought she must have fallen down a crevasse right. or something, and then somebody found her. Right. And so you her, never know. Yeah, and if it's Hale's, amazing that how people show up. Especially if Halo's body is on restricted secret military <laughs> property that nobody really has access to right. and, and is difficult to search. Yeah. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> a little tiny child it's is good. easy to hide. If they found a body off the turnpike down in Wells where they have that way station for for a truck. It's like, you know, it looks like an exit, but it's a way station. Right. Apparently somebody pulled over there and threw a, a woman's body there. I think some Girl Scouts found it because they were pulled over, their bus pulled over to... So um, they could go to the bathroom Maybe in the to woods. pee in the woods or yeah. something. But they found this girl, this woman. But what trip. are the chances, though? I mean, right. like, you it, know, you, it's just it weird. And there are a lot of people who have disappeared in Maine, you know, hunters and people, and we've never been found. Yeah, and it's not like some mysterious... The person turned up, body was found the same year that I worked there, um, off Kennedy Memorial Drive. It was a fugitive. Yeah, they they did. It was a fugitive who had been missing for... So he, they, yeah. they figured he'd been there for six months before yeah. he was discovered. Yeah, I never know. But yeah, I, I feel like she I, that she's dead. I don't think she's I think alive. everybody believes that. I don't think there's any chances. Yeah. Although I will say it's funny how it how similar this case is to that movie more than the book of Gone Baby Gone. I'm a big Casey Affleck fan, so <laughs> I I that's, uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed not ashamed not ashamed for a minute. He's much. I had watched that a couple of years when it came out, and after this happened, I watched it again, and there were things particularly about the the way the little girl's mother acted. Yes. In some ways, reminded me of yes. ways Trista Reynolds acted. But there were some similarities, and because it was fiction in a, a great Dennis Lehane book <laughs> um, that's better than the movie, all yeah, the movie's good. But it, it was hard not to think about that. Spoiler alert, the kid is not dead. But in real life, yeah. something happened, yeah. and she's no longer with us. And I think the police said that fairly. You know, when they said it was a criminal investigation, um, and I think they did actually say that they don't think she's alive. Yeah, they did say that. At some point fairly early on. The day that the um, reward the expired. <laughs> right, in June. <laughs> I mean, at that same news conference, they said that they were dead. And it's just, it's so, it's just sad. It I is mean, sad. Whatever happened. It is, and it's, I mean, their lives have been, whether guilty or innocent, their lives have been colored by this. And they're, Ben, thanks for Thank you. Um, coming in and reliving all this with us. I appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, um, it's such a difficult thing to cover something like this, and I will say that it it did haunt me for quite a while. I think one of the best gifts I gave to myself was allowing myself to forget most of this. I had a refresher course. Oh, great. Well, no, no, we're taking that gift. We're making that gift away from you and (laughs) stomping on it. Stomping on it and breaking everything that's in the box. It's the 50th anniversary. That first Saturday when Doug Harlow, the reporter working that weekend, said, two-year-old missing. If somebody had told me five years later we'd be sitting here saying we don't know what happened, I would have said, well, that's, you know, that's nuts. That doesn't happen. I'm not going to say that doesn't happen here because, you know, that's a rare, rare thing. There are six, there are are six kids, including Ayla Reynolds, since 1970 who have disappeared in Maine and haven't been found. It's six people under the age of 18, 46 years. And that's not a lot. Yeah. It's not a lot. So you assume that 
something will either she'll come home that day. They'll yes. find her under a canoe yes. or, you know, in somebody's car or, you know, wandered into somebody's house yeah. or something. Or they'll arrest somebody and know mm-hmm. they did that. And that didn't happen. Do you have anything else, Ben? I could talk for hours. Oh, I could too, but boy, we already have. So <laughs> thank you. Thanks for coming in. It's time for Ask a Lawyer. And we've been talking this episode about the Ayla Reynolds case. A reminder that Ask a Lawyer is not about specific cases. It's general questions people have. But this case has raised the question that why won't the police arrest or the DA charge someone who the public believes is obviously guilty of a crime. We hear it a lot with different crimes. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry. And with us we have our criminal defense attorney from Nichols and Churchill in Portland, Matt Nichols. Thank you, thank you for having me. There are two different roles between the the police and the uh, prosecuting attorney, whether it be a U.S. attorney in a federal case, an attorney general in certain state cases, or DA in other in, in most of the state criminal cases. So I'm going to just focus on the, the role of the prosecutor first. Because the job of the police is not to make the ultimate charging decision. In fact, they do not make charging decisions. Police officers investigate and report to the prosecuting attorney. The prosecuting attorney uh, reviews that information, that evidence, and makes a decision whether or not to uh, bring formal charges against the specific individual. As far as why some people aren't charged, whom the general public thinks are obviously guilty, the general public doesn't have to deal with things like proof problems. Proof problems are the rubric under which most non-pros cases fall. You may have a case where evidence was obtained illegally. Part of the job of the prosecutor is to review the evidence and decide whether or not I what what evidence is going to be admissible and what isn't. Oftentimes, police officers have crossed lines, constitutional lines, and the prosecuting attorney is the one who has to say that ain't never going to be heard by any fact finder mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to be heard by folks listening to TV, radio, podcasts like this, or for the uh, older folks like myself, people actually reading a newspaper. (laughs) But it's not going to be heard by the fact finder. In other cases, prosecutors, obviously not in a case, something like a murder case, but there are other cases in which prosecutors use prosecutorial discretion in a different way, that is, they look at mitigating factors about the specific individual or look at the facts of the case, and the prosecutor may say to him or herself, you know, this technically this is a crime, but this is not exactly what the legislature intended to uh, punish or sanction as criminal conduct. In the case of a murder, um, and you see this a lot like on true crime TV shows, 48 Hours Mystery and Dateline and stuff, and everybody, quote unquote, you, you guys can't see my air quotes, but I'm <laughs> air quotes, just knows this person is guilty and kind of blames the police and the prosecutors for not charging them. And so given the issues of proof and that type of thing, what happens when a case goes to court, the proof doesn't hold up in court, and the person who everybody knows committed the crime is found not guilty. What happens? For our, for for our less informed the per- listeners. <laughs> the, the, the defendant 
shakes the hand of his or her defense attorney and walks out of the courthouse like OJ. a free person. To never be tried again for that because they've been found innocent. Now, what if well, they're not no, guilty? No, 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 no. i got to call you Nellie Marie. No one, in my 28 years, I have never asked a jury or a judge, I've never asked a fact finder to find my client innocent. It's, uh, it's not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> because she's in the news, it was in the newspaper. But I thought I read somewhere once that the reason they say innocent instead of not guilty is because the headline is afraid of a of a typo or right. some kind if of. If the knot falls off of the headline, you have a lawsuit on your hands. Yeah. But we do say not guilty because, as Matt pointed out, it's more technically correct. I understand the distinction between not guilty and innocent. <laughs> but so this person could never be tried. Now, I know there was a case where I, I want to say it was Emmett Till, but I could be wrong, where after the guys were found not guilty, they gave a big interview to a magazine basically saying how they did it. And so even if new evidence comes up, even if somebody after they're found not guilty says, oh, I did it, and man, am I glad I did, that person can't be hauled back and then retried. Is that what double jeopardy is? Double jeopardy is, spend an hour talking about double jeopardy. It, it can be quite confusing. But what you're talking about is some of those, uh, the civil rights homicides in the 60s in, in, in the Deep South, um, folks who were acquitted of murder and state prosecutions and later prosecuted by the, the, the feds for civil rights violations. Now, double jeopardy, you have to do a, uh, again, I don't want to get too technical, but you, you're talking about a situation where you're comparing elements of the alleged crime and uh, seeing if it meets the double jeopardy standard. Also, you have the issue of a, what they would call a separate sovereign. That is the federal government prosecuting right. the case instead of uh, state prosecution under state law. Well, let me like oversimplify this as much as possible. Somebody is charged with murdering somebody here in Maine. They go to trial and are found not guilty. After they're found not guilty, new evidence comes up. Either they say they did it or maybe DNA evidence is found that shows that they did it. Something that would make them be found guilty that wasn't there when they were first tried they can't be retried. That is correct. Newly discovered evidence and within certain parameters can be used by a defendant who's been convicted right. to get a new trial, but it cannot be used to start a prosecution anew. Which is why prosecutors are generally, we would think, very careful about charging someone who they want to be sure goes to prison. They better get it right the first time because mm -hmm. they only get one shot. That's right. That's right. There you go. And on that note, We'll say this is Ask a Lawyer. And we'll talk to you again next time, Matt. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay. It, was, it was great having Ben here. Yes, it was. I hope we have some more guests in the future. I think we will. And that went a little long, but I think it was a really interesting topic. Yes. Yeah. And people are going to, and he had a lot of interesting things to say. So yes, he had a lot of good insight, and it's nice having somebody else here sometimes. It is. Well, and we're not, we're not in, at Mom and Dad's house right now, so. Yeah, our we're, secret. We're at Think Tank in Yarmouth. Yes, and I didn't say that earlier, but we are recording in our recording studio on the raging shores of the majestic Royal River. Beautiful, and beautiful town. Beautiful Yarmouth, Maine. And Historic. now now for something completely different. Okay. Oh, wait, somebody else says that. So. Speaking of like small, really picturesque, cute towns, 
Mm, nice segue. Just like Stars Hollow. Yeah, Stars Hollow. That Stars fictional Hollow. town. It's so whimsical. And so, in case you were wondering, <laughs> and there will be some spoilers in this. Oh, yes. Our recommendations segment is going to be more of a review segment tonight because we can't not talk about the Gilmore Girls. Because we both just Gilmore watched Girls. the The four-episode new version, new version a, year a Year in the Life. life. Each, each episode was a different season. Mm. And I want to start, okay, and then you can okay. stop me when, you, when you're when you tired of listening to what I'm saying <laughs> and you can go. I didn't love it. Yeah. And I felt, particularly the first three episodes, and I noticed the first three were written by David Palladino, mm-hmm. and the last one was written by Amy Palladino, hyphen, uh, her. Yeah, like, what? who is he and who is she, do you know? They're the original creators and writers of the show. I, the first three, particularly the, fir- the first one, were... If I'm going to write a Gilmore Girls show, here are all the things I'm going to do. And it was too, wrote, by rote, too mm-hmm. whimsical, too, the characters, maybe they just, because they hadn't done their thing for so many years, were almost playing the roles of themselves, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It's funny, I was watching it with our mom, who's 80, and she kept saying, and I, and I won't do my mom voice imitation. <laughs> I'll just can quote her. Quote like, her she without doing like nor- I don't know if I can quote her without doing that voice. This is too frenetic. Yeah. Although she didn't say she it like She doesn't this. like frenetic she, And things. why are they talking so fast? Yeah. It's too frenetic. This show is making me nervous because it's too frenzied. And to tell you the truth... In I, fairness, though, everything makes her nervous. We make her very nervous. <laughs> but I, I will say that she hit the nail on the button. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was all about the frenetic and the fast talking and the cutesy references, pop mm-hmm. culture references, many, which I'm old and square now. I didn't get some nah. of them. But even sometimes when I don't get them, I'm like, oh, that's cool. I can get the kind of thing you're referencing. But I just felt it was... Okay, let's hit all the marks. I'd say tick all the boxes, but yes. that's what they always say in House Hunters, and oh, and yeah. I get tired of that phrase. Let's hit all the marks. We have a checklist of how the girls have to act, like that first scene where they were walking around, commenting, and so it was just I, mm-hmm. I just found it annoying. Yes. To tell you the truth, I was more annoyed than felt that whimsical joy you're supposed to feel. Yes. And and I always I'm as you know I'm kind of a realist. And things that are kind of fantastical don't appeal to me in a lot of ways. But I always accepted Stars Hollow is not supposed to be a depiction of a real place, even a real place in Connecticut, which we all know is more different than Maine is. More different. (laughs) You know what I mean. It's all like uh, To be fair, I don't know a lot about about any small towns in Connecticut. <laughs> but I can guarantee, okay, I, guess, <laughs> but I can guarantee you there's no town like Stars Hollow anywhere. First of all, just as is a journalist, you know, so this guy Taylor, who apparently is the town I manager, he, he like runs owns everything. everything, owns the newspaper, which huge conflict of interest, is trying <laughs> to get a sewer. When you look at the town, which doesn't look like a small town, it doesn't look very small. I mean, there's a lot lived of buildings that are at least there. three stories high. They have to have sewer. Luke's could not operate on no a septic shit. system. You oh, can't. That have, wasn't a pun. In fact, the the town I live in, or, or actually, I should say, right now, the town my house is in, since yes. we all know I'm living in a small bedroom in my parents' house as I pursue my dream <laughs> in the basement. <laughs> In the basement of her parents' right, house. Right. The capsule. They, in fact, so. the, the town I live in, which is the village is jammed between two lakes, has trouble getting 
year-round restaurants and other businesses that aren't seasonal gift shops and stuff because they don't have sewer, they have mm-hmm. septic. It's very difficult to operate without a sewer system. Yes. You can't operate businesses. So I'm sorry I went on that. That, that was awful. a spoiler to tell everybody <laughs> how Taylor wants a sewer system. Yeah, sorry. I if you didn't want to hear that, I'm sorry. The fact I'm obsessing about that. I know. The fact I'm obsessing about that tells you Gilmore Girls was not this transformational yes. experience. And I'll say before there was such a thing as binging, I binged. Yes. And when it was on disc on Netflix, I started watching it when it first came on and then lagged yes. off. And I watched the entire however many series in a matter of a few months. I think it was seven. On, it seven on disc on Netflix yeah. back probably six or seven years ago. Yes, I remember. Yeah, you do remember. Some with you. You did, and we discussed Before it. I was pregnant with Hannah, so it was... I do think the mother, played by Kelly... Kelly, Kelly... I can't think of her last name, but anyway, yes. it, we're awful. We don't know these people's names, but I thought she was fantastic. I love her. I yes. thought she was fantastic, and I never felt like she struck a bad note or that she was playing somebody playing no, herself. No, she's always great. And I really liked her character's transformation during yes, the show. I did too. And that whole bit with the family from the country, you can't figure out where they're yes. living in her house. And I think it really humanized her. If yes. Her crusty edges were still there, but her character was... I felt her character was probably the most well-developed character on the show, and I thought that was a high point. I also thought the final episode... The whole montage with Logan's extremely annoying friends didn't work for me. I hate was them. not. I hate those I'll guys. Go into my Are we supposed to be charmed by by rich assholes who get drunk and and I have another big issue with these four episodes, but I've been going on too long. I used up all my time going on about the sewer system. So well, Becky, my my problem with it is I did used to watch it when it was first on, and it was slightly I I enjoyed it I guess like enough to watch it, but then when I been hey is there a word where you can merge enjoyed and annoyed? We can make one. it would sound like enjoyed I guess and enjoyed annoyed but and that's enjoyed. what that's what Gilmore no. Girls always kind of did for me. So anyways, since it's my turn. <laughs> No, so, but when then when I, I did binge watch it when it came on Netflix and found myself extremely annoyed, but I still had to watch it. I don't know Enjo- why. Annoyed. Annoyed. I I'm don't. still working on that. Yeah. So I still had to watch it. Actually, I liked most of the characters. Well, I hated Rory's college friends with a passion. I hate rich, entitled, oh, aren't we cute the way that we vandalize shit and, and do stuff. And, oh, let's just buy everything yeah. because we're so rich we don't know what to and do with it, all and our money. Thing and yet the people who are watching this show are probably wondering how they're going to feed their kids no, next shit. week. But here, oh, isn't it well, whimsical? We're buying a, a bed and fantasy and type of thing. But it is, but it does I was not happy to see them return. Lorelai, I know that the premise of the show is she's more of a kid and Rory's the responsible one and a blah, Well, I blah, have to blah. say Rory wasn't acting very responsible. No. So, and I'm talking about throughout the whole series, not just this most recent one. Uh, Lorelai, and part of it is because she reminds me of somebody you yeah, don't like. I, I don't like. For the it, way it she acts. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. You forced me to say that. I'm not going to say who. They might be a listener. This oh, person, whether I like, I like them or not. I like the way you think people are listening. Hey, you never know. That's true. But it's not me. Let's just clarify. Okay, it's not you. No, but she, the woman, the character is stuck. It's like, she's like a 15-year-old, and she has to be the center of attention all the time. And she's she's rude a lot of times to people. I find her very rude. 
And even though she's, she's supposedly funny, but she's not, her humor is at the expense of others, and I just don't like it. And I thought Rory... And Rory was, I liked her when she was a younger girl, but when she hit college, uh, first of all, having an affair with her ex-boyfriend while he was married, she thought she was justified. Everything she did, she thought she was justified. And then in this, so then we come to this newer one, and she's having an affair with Dickhead Logan all this time. Spoiler. And, oh, sorry. No, but we did say there would be spoilers. Yes, there's spoilers. Who, I never liked that, no offense to that actor, I didn't mind Matt, him. Matt. Yeah. He was that, good on the good life. Life. He was okay, but I still, he still bugged me. I don't like. I don't like that spiky hair. On the Good Wife, he didn't have the spikes, but um, he still was uh, annoying. Sorry, but it's true. You don't have to apologize. So she's having this stupid relationship with him that supposedly is just casual, but we know those kind of things. No such thing. No such thing. I think she thought that she would still be number one, even though she thought just like like all girls or like all other women or. Maybe sometimes the wife, like, oh, well, he'll always come back to me. Well, first of all, they're both single. They're not married. So why don't they have a relationship? His father, who cares about what his father thinks? His father doesn't seem to have any bad feelings towards her. So why aren't they together? Why is he with some French girl? It's very cliche and very stupid, and I thought that was stupid. Lorelai and Luke, I like Luke, all right, although sometimes he's kind of a dickhead. But I'm just saying, she should. I think she should have got to back together with Chris. I thought her and Chris made a good couple, Lorelai and Chris. Laura, the, who, Rory's father. Rory's dad. Right. I, I did. I honestly did. And you know what's funny is he's like the only one that didn't really age. I'm like, he looks exactly the same. Every, and the other person that looked exactly the same was that annoying, Luke's annoying daughter, April. She looked exactly and talked exactly the same as she did when she was 12 years old. Yes. And she I felt and she was very exactly. caricaturish. And well, I know, again, annoying. that everybody on the show is kind of a caricature. Kind of and my last, and this is a big spoiler, so if you haven't watched it, don't listen to the next, like, I don't know, minute of what I say. Or 15 but minutes with us. Why, uh, uh, Suki coming back. Which well, you knew that was five minutes. I knew she was coming happen. back, but it was just way at the very right. end. And again, it felt, even though Melissa McCarthy, I think, is an excellent actress, it felt forced to me. Yes, very like forced. here I am back. Here she is back. She's going to do this. Cute and the other thing, thing, there were two beefs I have with the whole storyline and the writing, which is also a big spoiler. And when they were in therapy, uh, Laura. This is going to be one of my things, too, so I get to talk about okay. it, too. So go ahead. So this so, is a big issue I have. <laughs> so if the, it's going to be the same. Yes. She brought up the, what's her, what's Lorelai's mom's name? Why can't I think? Well, Mrs. Old Mrs. Gilmore, <laughs> I know. She brought up the some the letter. letter that she had found. It, we never heard anything more about it. It was and obvious, obvious Lorelai didn't write it. Yes, it was something Mrs. Gilmore had found had, and had been harboring yes. a horrific grudge about yes. for years. And part of me is like, okay, is this it's something that happened up. in the original series that and I'm I don't supposed remember? To remember. Yeah. It, um, and there were some things in the show that you kind of had to have watched the original series yes. to get what was going on, like the whole thing with Jess. But yes. it, but it was dropping. And as a writer, as a mystery writer, it really it's a big no no. You don't yeah, you drop don't a giant egg like that. And then I was waiting for them. And so my yeah. conclusion was they needed a vehicle to make her the mom, you know, Lorelai's mom, stop going to therapy. So they had a big fight about that, and she stopped going to therapy. So. But you can't do that and not resolve it. I know. And, and that and Jess looking longingly through the window at Lorelai at the end of the last episode. You mean Rory. 
they if they were going to oh Jess is still pining for Rory don't give it this little ding at the end of the show develop him have him on more because I think he's a good looking fella and I like him a lot more than well he's Rory. in that he's in some right show. this is us What's okay the other thing I have a, a a beef about is all through the show they're mentioning how TJ and Liz were in this vegetable cult and I assumed. You would that, see TJ and Liz. Well, I don't care about seeing them because especially they TJ was fucking yeah. annoying. And that Liz always plays the same type. She of is. Person she's that a one They were talking about this vegetable cult, and I assumed that it was going to turn out that they were mistakenly thought it was a cult, but it was really the thing that Jackson and Suki were involved in because Ooh. they were involved with that vegetable. You were given the writers and nothing like the letter. They just got kicked out of the vegetable cult. Like the letter and other things, it was just a vehicle for them to talk about them and to put Luke and Jess in that situation where they were going to have to go. You know what reminds me kind of, even though they didn't have flashbacks, which thank God, but it reminds me of that kind of show, those shows that they always have that are like during the season where it's like a bunch of flashbacks to other shows that I always hated because they're always like really artificial right. and, like the and that's how I felt right. that whole thing. Right. And I also, as when I'm reading or watching something really, really good, I'm caught up in the story. Yes. When there are problems with something, I start kind of deconstructing it and looking at it as a writer. What are they doing here? What aren't they doing here? And I felt like they just dropped a lot of things in there. Yeah. The the letter was just a way to yeah, get them to have that big, a big enough fight so the mom stopped going to mm-hmm. therapy. The vegetable cult was just a cutesy little thing to talk about TJ and Liz and then set up a scene with Luke and Jess that wasn't even that important. I know. When you read a, a well-crafted novel or watch a well-crafted TV show or movie, there should be nothing going on that grabs that much of your attention that isn't somehow woven in yeah. and, and doesn't have some kind of revolu- resolution. You get distracted by those things, and they're not advancing the story the way they should. They're well, being used as, it, as devices instead of... Yeah. It, there was another major thing that bothered me. Rory, I felt like Rory, I know she was going through this midlife crisis, this millennial midlife crisis, and I had a lot of trouble feeling bad for her because she just needed to As usual, she's whining about her, shit. You know, she's- I think most young journalists that age, you don't expect to get necessarily in the New Yorker, and she was great, she got in the New Yorker and stuff, but she obviously didn't want to friggin' work. I know. She didn't want to work at it, she wanted big, splashy things. The whole thing with the town newspaper, I'm not even going to get into because that was so ridiculous that the whole thing, everything about it pisses me off. Her job interview with that website, granted the woman who ran the website was annoying, and I thought, stupidly, okay, the resolution is Rory's going to get a job at this website that's begging her to come work here and find out that she can be a journalist without it being in the biggest magazines in the world. That would have been the But nice. instead, she goes to the sign, a job interview, completely unprepared. Which is... She, she sneers at the woman interviewing her. She's astounded that she's being asked questions and ideas. And I felt, as a viewer, we weren't supposed to be... That we were supposed to be sympathizing with yes. Rory. When I actually found myself sympathizing with the annoying woman who ran the website... I know we were supposed to be annoyed by her and by her website and the office where everybody just sits together at a big table, which would make, I think, people kill each other. Well, no, a lot of places do that now. I know they do, which is why I'm so glad I'm not a millennial, (laughs) but a boomer. Um, Because in boomers, I mean, I worked in newsrooms where you don't have an office, 
but at least you're not all together at a picnic I know, table. I know, I wouldn't want that. Listening I like having to my each own other's desk. food noises and stuff. Yeah. The way she handled that job interview, and she had almost contempt for this She's person. Snotty. And and couldn't understand why she had to answer any questions. And I'm like, is is this the millennial version of a job interview? Or is this what you kids do these days? You go in and you kind of... Sneer at the fact that you're expected to have answers to I questions. I know. I know. And I had no sympathy for her, and that's when I lost any little sympathy I might have had for that. And we or whatever she was going through. Did I pronounce that I right? I can never. No, remember. I don't know. But you know, whatever her little millennial. And I'm sorry, I keep saying millennial, and I'm sorry if I'm insulting any of the millennials <laughs> who are. Yeah, they're the only ones that listen to podcasts. Oh, that's shit. Shit. Sorry, youngins. Screw this up. A general sense my issue with the show was we're going to do a Gilmore Girls sequel here's all the ingredients you have for a Gilmore Girls show let's just put them all together we're not going to do it well because people love Gilmore Girls so much they're just going to jump all over the sequel and they're going to go along with what was basically a phoned in thing I thought thought the, the final episode was better than the first three yeah I liked the wedding fantasy part with the beautiful, with Kirk, who I've always kind of liked, even though he's annoying. I like Kirk. And his little pig pedal. And yeah. his movie was funny. I like funny. this movie. His movie, Kirk. This was, was one of, that was like a different level characters. of humor. To me, that, that stuff with Kirk was a different level of humor than a lot of the other stuff on the show. And I thought the fantasy wedding, what he had done to the park, was beautiful. Yes. And that's the kind of fantasy, okay, I'll go along with that. Yeah. Because we know it isn't really, but it's it gives, it brings with it the feeling you're yes. supposed to have. And it brings the the joy and the feeling mm-hmm. and so here's what we're trying to do the the fantasy earlier in the show where logan's three extremely uh, annoying rich friends that montage and, and mom, thing mom it was kept, so annoying and mom kept saying to me is is she having a dream is she and i'm like i god i hope so because if this is really part of the show and also mom was obsessing about the fact that she didn't close the door to the newspaper office, even though it was late at night when they all went off on their jolly oh, little yeah. rampage through Connecticut. Like I said. And then and they ended up, of course, in this fake New Hampshire in that it just was not. Yeah, that's another thing. You wonder if the writers are New Englanders and have been to New England. I remember one thing in the original series when they went to Harvard. Yes. And so they lived like somewhere in like I think that I'm gonna guess the Fairfield area of Connecticut. Well, it's a half an hour from Hartford and half an hour from Yale. So, so, so that Connecticut's not that big a place. But they went to Harvard mm-hmm. when Rory had her Harvard yes, session, yes. and it like took literally all day to get I know. there. And when I say literally, I truly mean yes. literally. And I'm like, no, it takes it's like, it's like, like a, ninety uh, minutes I to know. get to Boston. I know. I've heard that was two hours too. or something. And it's like, well, I often wonder if the people who wrote it are actually from New England or that's, know yeah, anything that's about right. New England. That's what I feel. I just, the, uh, one of the first shows of the series, they show a sign that says, Welcome to Stars Hollow, and that has the uh, population. And I think it says, like, and I'm sure somebody who's, like, obsessed with the show can tell you. But I, I'm pretty sure it says, like, 10,000 or something. I know it's a set or whatever, but it looks too big. It looks too big to be a right. small town. Right, it, And that it, helped it, fuel my sewer obsession. But also... But also, but yeah, they have a town meeting, and, and there's, there's like, and of, of course, town meetings probably don't have that no, many people. No. But still, come on. Right. I mean, they don't have. They a city would not hall. have that form of government. Actually, it's kind of a dictatorial form of government. Where Taylor <laughs> stands up there and tells everybody what's going on, and then so. right, and that he owns the newspaper apparently because he announced they were going to shut down. Yes. The newspaper. Yes. So apparently, the town is like this has it's a, a dictator, with a dictator. Yes, with a dictator, and nobody seems to really care about it 
that no, they don't no, seem to mind. Um, they just kind of take it a oh, ta- well, Taylor won't let you do that. Yeah, that's we're gonna have a firing and he and squad. Kind of Maybe it's like in the lottery. Yeah, yeah, they're gonna kill. Maybe it would be nice if it took that dark turn. That would have made it more interesting. The one thing that bugged me about them that got worse as the series progressed, and I found it. Are we talking about the new one or the old I'm talk- one? I'm talking about this whole series in general, the new and the old together. Is Lorelai and Rory were always snotty. Okay. And are. at the beginning, it was kind of okay. It was kind of cute. They never learned. They got worse. And in this one, they were extremely snotty. Like when they're sitting at the pool, making right. fun of everybody. And the little boys are holding their I parasols. I don't even get that. That's just And wrong. I have to say, Mom didn't either. And neither did I. And it was just distracting. So they're making these little boys hold parasols up over them? Were they at least paying the kids? Maybe we missed that, even though we have the closed captioning on. No. Possibly missed what was going on. No, it's just annoying. They're just annoying. And that's one issue I've always had with the show is we're going to throw in quirkiness for the sake of quirkiness. And to me, that's just distracting. And they eat constantly, and they're both friggin' thin. Right. In fact, Mom it's was not guessing. Fair. Mom was guessing because she's watched a lot of soap operas in her life. One of the episodes, I want to say it was the second one, Lorelai was particularly obsessed with food, and Mom predicted Lorelai's pregnant, which wouldn't be a leap because they were looking at the surrogacy yes, and all that. Yes. And I kept saying, no, Mom, she just likes to eat a lot. And sure enough, by the next episode, she wasn't pregnant. And nobody had ever broached the subject of her meat. She was still just eating. So that was another thing. Like, they paid, They there was way too much of her obsessing about eating without any real payoff. Of course, or, they could be bulimic because, you know, bulimic people well, it would have been nice obsess about food if they had brought that and up. eat all the time and then they go cute. But my point is, again, about the writing that, oh, Lorelai likes to eat a lot and she eats all sorts of junk yeah. food. So we're going to throw in all these little bits yes. where she's eating junk food. And it's just like they took all the things you have. If it's Gilmore Girls, okay, mm-hmm. we got to put this. Let's check off this box. We check off this box. Oh, but I also thought Paris... Um, for the most part, was pretty good. Yeah, but then I felt like she went over the top. I felt she's always been a little over the top, though. So, um, but I don't know she could get through life without being punched in the face. I know it's a fantasy, but right. But on the other hand, I think she's a refreshing alternative to the other people on the show. Yeah, she is. I identify a little more with her. And poor Lane didn't have much to do. No, and Lane's always been a character I liked, and I felt like that was another situation where. Here I am, I'm Lane, here's the way I act, I play the drums. It just didn't feel like there was any development. Oh, here's Lane, let's throw her in. And here's her militant mother. And here's her militant mother. We've gone on a little long here. But I would say, in general, I would recommend watching, if you haven't yet, even though we've spoiled every... I'm sure everybody that likes Gilmore Girls has watched by now. And the reason I'm recommending it is so you can... Dislike the things that we <laughs> because there's a certain pleasure to watching something yes. and bitching about it. At least we have we, it's yeah. for us, it is. And I don't so, know about you, but and so you know, I it's getting late, you, I'm getting really is, tired. Well, as I said, it's a jumbo size, it, it, it is a jumbo episode. And, and, and I said I, that on our Facebook page, which yes. is crime, crime and stuff. stuff. With an ampersand. With an ampersand. And then our website. So do a search on Facebook and, and like us on like Facebook. Like us on Facebook. Our website is crimeandstuffonline.com. And, and, and if you're really dying to crime hear. Crime A-N-D. A-N-D with no ampersand. We tried the ampersand and it wouldn't let us yeah, do it because so. we're so low rent that we yeah. had to create our website. So our website is crimeandstuffonline.com. Crimeandstuffonline.com. And I was going to say, if you are so anxious to hear one of our episodes, 
that you can't wait for it to come out on iTunes. Usually it's on our website available a day or two before it comes out on iTunes and Android and Blueberry and everywhere else. You can follow us on Twitter at Crime and Stuff, and that's the word and. If you go to our website, Crime and Stuff Online, there's actually a page on our website where you can subscribe in whatever way, including by email to our yes. podcast. So, uh, but because I, I know say, you're sitting there wondering, how can I subscribe I know, to this podcast? But you're already listening to us, so you well, you can proud listen of. to it without subscribing. I'm just saying, though, if they do go on iTunes, yes. they should like us and review yes. us, even if it's bad. Even if they're like, why won't those two old bags shut up? They're always bitching about millennials What's and dropping F problems. Hey, I've been like this all my life. I have two, but now have I have an excuse. Okay. And, and it's and, called menopause. And if you want us to if, to perhaps hire a sound engineer <laughs> yeah. or something, you can always donate. And there's a place to donate on our website. All that, any donations go to the my making the podcast. Drinking. No, <laughs> Well, that's not my drinking my drinking problem. No, no I'm just I kidding. I have no problem. We, we would use uh, them to help run our podcast we because we honestly, as you can tell, we have a very low budget. You know what? Maybe. That's how we roll. And and hey, I'm, it's the podcast you would do if you got nothing better to do. Right, and I we think don't. We obviously matter. don't. It's you know Saturday night. And we're just sitting here. and we're just sitting here talking. And we actually lured poor Ben McKenna. Thanks again to Ben, and thanks again to Matt Nichols from Nichols and Churchill yes, thank for you, providing a level of professionalism. <laughs> yes, and, somebody has to. And if you have any questions for Matt for Ask a Lawyer, please email or send them through Facebook. And feel free to email us with any. Any, any comment or question, even if it... Right, even if my... Shut the fuck right. up. Or we won't. If God is all-powerful, then he made the rock so big, even he can't... Oh, it. my gosh. Yeah. I don't know. That's a hard one. So, on that note, I think, I think it's getting late, yes. and we're showing it. So, until next week, I think we're saying goodbye. Okay, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye.